Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello again, my good friend, and welcome into another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. I hope you get excited every time you hear that little jazzy intro kick in, because it means we're bringing you another episode of this show where we look into everything that's streaming in movies and television and music every month here on the Stream Police Podcast. I am Clint Davis. I'm your host. I talk about movies and I talk about TV from my closet in uh, the outskirts of beautiful Columbus, Ohio. And uh, in just a little bit, we'll be hearing from my friend and yours, Andy Sedlak, who takes us through the world of music every month here on the show. And uh, man, I really appreciate you joining me, joining us, listening to us here on the program. We do it completely uh, out of our our love for bringing it to you and our love for the things that we talk about. Um, It's really just a a pure passion project from Andy and myself. As uh, we've mentioned before on the show, we never... We've never made any money off of the show. We don't uh, have any ads that we've we sell ourselves or anything like that. I think you know Acast, who hosts us um, for free, thankfully, uh, they do some ads sometimes. Um, you know, I guess to justify keeping us around. But anyway, we don't make any money on the show, so uh, we really just appreciate you listening, and we love the great comments that we get. It really kind of keeps us keeps us going. So uh, be sure to to give us a review. We we need those more than the guys that make like $200,000 per episode to uh, kick, you know, sexist and misogynistic uh, takes on sports. I think you know the kind of guys that I'm talking about uh, in the world of podcasting. So uh, again, thank you very much for joining me this month on the show. Uh, I mean, there is a lot going on in the world right now that just really feels a little bit scary and a little bit exciting and revolutionary, but also um, just uncertain, right? I mean, we don't know what direction we're going to take from here. It's We're at a point now, I think, where we don't know. I don't think any of us can say what the world is going to look like in 20 years. And I feel like 20 years ago, a lot of people probably had a pretty decent idea of the way things were going to go. They were just going to stay on the same path they'd been on, the same boring, lazy uh you know, kind of dog-eat-dog, one-percenter-run world that uh, we've had. But now it feels like maybe we are going to see some kind of sea change. So uh, this month on the show, I know I'm going to talk a lot. I want to take this time because this is this is my platform. This is what I've got. This is what I can give you. And I can't really go out 
and protest because I'm I'm a type one diabetic, so I'm a high risk, you know, person to get COVID nineteen. And if I get it, type ones don't do that well with it, and they die at a much higher rate rate than like type two type two diabetics do when they get into the hospital because you know I'm insulin dependent and I depend on a pump, and there's a lot that goes into that. So if I'm unconscious and on a ventilator and uh, kind of on my own, then it's it's tough to survive that, um, and it's tough to survive COVID anyway if you're at that point. So I'm not able to go out and like protest, but I've been able to give money to bail funds around Columbus. And um, I gave money to the Committee to Protect Journalists and also subscribed to the New York Times to the uh, print edition of it, just as like a little thing that I'm going to enjoy. And I think it really does fund something worthwhile because their coverage during the coronavirus uh, and during the protests has been uh, has been really strong for the most part, except for that op-ed that they wrote that uh, ended up getting their opinion section uh, just scathed by everybody on earth and heads were rolling all over the office uh, there in New York. So anyway, those are some things that I've been able to do, but also I've got this show and what I want to do this month is I want to put the spotlight on black artists in television and in cinema specifically. So I'm going to, as much as I can in this episode of the show, I'm going to talk about Things that were directed by black directors, written by black writers, and featured like almost all black casts, at least in the main parts. That's the kind of stuff I'm going to talk about here on the show this month. And I know Andy's going to be talking about protest music, um, and that's going to be very fitting as well for everything that's going on. So anyway, in the introduction, as I always do, I want to lead you over to the Overdue Review YouTube channel. I haven't been as active there in the last few weeks, but hit, uh, hit me up on there and subscribe and you'll you'll like the reviews. If you like this show, I think you'll like the stuff I've done up there. So anyway, it's Overdue Review at YouTube. Give me a little subscription there. And also, I am on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis, and you can always see what I'm watching there. As I'm watching it, I always post Whenever I watch a movie, which is often, which is, you know, most nights really, um, I will post what I'm watching there. And Andy is on Instagram at Andy Sedlak. Uh, his last name is spelled S-E-D-L-A-K. Um, I, I Usually I start the show with a stogie, but the last couple months I haven't been doing it out of solidarity with people who, um, you know, have COVID-19 or have died from it because they can't breathe. So I feel like smoking a stogie is kind of rubbing it in their faces, right? And some people may say that that's a great thing to do because they're assholes, but I don't want to do that here on the show. So I'm not going to smoke my stogie. But also this month I'm not going to do it because there are a lot of people out there who can't breathe for reasons completely unrelated to COVID-19. Of course, like the late George Floyd found out. So no stogie this month. Um, We'll see if I'm going to bring that back again anytime in the near future. I hope I can. I really hope... I can. Uh, let me go to an email real fast. I got uh, a good email since last time we spoke. You can write me at theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com. And actually, I guess this one came through a text because uh, he's one of my good friends and also listens to the show. But you can always email me if you don't have my phone number and you want to ask me a, a question or tell me something to talk about on the show or give me a thought on what I've talked about on the show. Anyway, my good friend Alex who uh, has his wedding coming up here in the next couple of months. And it's just like the worst time in human history to have a wedding, right? Uh, And I feel awful because I can't go because, like I said, I'm high risk. So I'm just – Alex, I feel terrible, man. I know I already told you that. But 
Um, he's a great guy, and I'm gonna. I, I hate, and his his fiance is great too, and I really like her. So I'm bummed. There's not there's not a lot of weddings that I actually look forward to going to, but this was one that I actually looked forward to going to. So I'm disappointed in that. But anyway, Alex let me know that he was listening to the show last month, and he enjoyed my segment on Better Call Saul's Bagman episode where I was talking about how it it really was one of the better episodes of that series and it was one of the better episodes I've seen on TV in a long time. It felt like a really tight action movie, right? And that's not the kind of way I would describe Better Call Saul. Usually, I would not describe it as like a really intense show because it's not. It's not heavy on intensity like Breaking Bad was, but this episode was the most Breaking Bad that Better Call Saul has ever done. Um, And it was directed by the great Vince Gilligan is why I think it was so good because he is just a master storyteller in the television medium. I mean, few guys have mastered television like Gilligan. I, I put Vince Gilligan honestly up there with the guys like Rod Serling who just know how to tell stories on TV. And that is completely where they are the most comfortable and where they're just about better than anybody in history. So anyway, Alex wrote me and said he liked, uh, he loved the episode Bagman also. He thought it, it was you know, it just blew him away. He thought it was one of the best episodes of TV he'd seen in a while. And he actually compared it to the uh, Sopranos episode, Pine Barrens, which is a great comparison. And I love Pine Barrens, but if you look into Pine Barrens, and if you don't remember this episode, this was the one, if you've ever seen The Sopranos, you know the episode I'm talking about. This was the episode where Christopher and Polly end up getting stranded in the middle of the Pine Barrens, I guess it's like a national park in New Jersey, just this massive forest in New Jersey in the middle of winter. And it's like just dead of winter, snow everywhere, total blizzard. They can't get out of this forest. They're just stranded there, stuck there. Um, I can't remember if the, the car's broken down, I think is what it was. But anyway, and they're like on in pursuit of this Russian who they have to kill and they just can't find him anywhere. And, and even when they do finally get him, when they shoot him, they can't find his body and they don't know what's happened to this guy. It's like he disappeared. And it's one of those great parts of the Sopranos. That's so just unexplainable um, and doesn't need an explanation. And it's, it's just so memorable and unique and, and just a great piece of television storytelling. It's one of my favorite episodes of the show, but a lot of people hate that episode. So Alex compared Bagman with Pine Barrens because I think they are both uh, very claustrophobic episodes, even though they take place in the outdoors. They're kind of episodes where you've got two characters exclusively that you enjoy spending time with stuck in a place where they're not comfortable out in the wilderness. uh, And they're also just nervous and um, they're like on the edge of death the entire time, or at least one of them is. Uh, and there's just a lot of great, the Pine Barrens, I think was funnier than Bagman. Uh, but Bagman was more intense, I think than Pine Barrens, but they're both really good episodes, standout episodes from great television shows. So thanks for the, uh, message, Alex, always appreciate it, man. And, uh, I hope, you know, I'd be there if I could. All right, so let's roll on with uh, the latest entry of the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And it's our 80th edition of the show, but our 52nd edition of the greatest TV show theme song of all time. So um, what is going to join the canon of the great TV intros to ever 
be produced. This time I'm going, I know last month I went to 1992 and this month, usually I don't like to do shows that are that close together, like back to back. Usually I'll space it out. I'll try to jump around decades a little bit because I don't want them to sound too similar, you know, back to back weeks. But this month, since I, t- I told you, I want to spend this episode talking a lot about shows made by black artists in filmmaking and in television. I wanted to do one of my favorite shows that ever had a like basically an all black cast. It was a groundbreaker in the 1990s that's finally getting a little bit more credit today. And its theme song is just perfect. And I'm talking about Fox's 1993 sitcom, Living Single. For the uninitiated on Living Single, let me just run down the main cast for you. At the top, we had Queen Latifah, Kim Coles, Erica Alexander, and Kim Fields as a foursome of black women living in New York. Three of them live together in a brownstone, and they're basically just navigating single life in the 1990s. And they had, you know, some men friends as well uh, and, and, and lovers who were kind of in and out of the picture Uh, Just like, you know, any of those great sitcoms that you would think of in that vein. But the main character of the show was played by Queen Latifah, and she ran a magazine as her job. So it was the classic thing, you know, she's got the exotic, creative, cool job uh, that it makes a little sense, at least, allowing her to live in a nice place like this brownstone. Unlike in Friends, where it's just like they're living in the most expensive apartment in, you know, New York history and like none of them have good jobs. So in this case, it actually made some sense. I've actually heard living single described as friends before friends. And I think that is a very accurate description, but I'm going to say living single is better in pretty much every way than friends. I loved this show when I was a kid. It used to air on Fox on the same night as Martin and New York Undercover, which were all shows that my dad loved to watch. And I would sit there and watch them with him. And and I'm thinking back on it now, and I was five, six, seven years old when these shows were on. And Martin and and Living Single, I mean, they're basically shows for adults, but they weren't like TVMA or anything. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that anybody would think was funny, even if you were a kid. And I definitely did. I thought Martin was hilarious. And and Living Single, I just liked. I don't know what it was. I think I just liked the whole vibe of it. I just thought liked the characters. I just liked the music. I I thought it looked good. I I just, there was something about the show I liked, even though I knew nothing about living in New York. You know, I'm living in like rural Ohio. I know nothing about living in New York. I know nothing about being a 20-something. I know nothing about being a black woman. But this was a show that I just connected with and I I really enjoyed. And New York Undercover was one of the first great cop shows I ever watched in my life. I think it's what hooked me on cop shows. But Martin and Living Single were absolutely two of my most cherished sitcoms of my youth. And Living Single itself aired opposite Friends on NBC. And we were definitely a living single house. I think you lived in a living single house or a friend's house. And we were living single house. And fr- living single actually debuted uh, a year before Friends. So it was before Friends. It was made by Warner Brothers, just like Friends. Um, and so there are a lot of comparisons to draw between these two shows. But uh, anyway, th- those two sitcoms especially, 
Martin and Living Single were just funny and carefree and products of the moment. I think it's what made them great. And I mean, just listen to this theme, this theme song. It just sounds like the 1990s, pure and simple, right? If I could distill the 90s down into a piece of music, I think the Living Single theme song would possibly be it. Queen Latifah wrote and performed this song, and in 1992, she was basically at the top of the rap game still, so it was a big deal to have her do the track, and I think she really nails it. I mean, her signature kind of powerful delivery that you you hear in her best-known songs like UNITY, it just punches through over this great beat, and you got these lyrics that really put the show's whole vibe at the forefront, being about friendship and the search for love in the city and the prime of your life, but really about women friendship, four women being friends and having each other's backs. That's what the lyrics are really about, and I think something about that just is is beautiful to hear and not common enough in television, especially when you're talking about a cast of black women. It's 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 fantastic, and again, it was ahead of its time. The series itself was groundbreaking because it was created by Yvette Lee Bowser. And she is a black TV writer who had worked on A Different World, which was the Cosby Show spinoff. And when she created Living Single, she actually became the first black woman in American TV history to develop a primetime series on her own. So that alone makes the show worth your time. So again, Yvette Lee Bowser, a true television pioneer, um, and another reason why Living Single is just... A, a, a fantastic show. The series would end up airing for five seasons, more than 100 episodes before it came to an end. It was lost for many years in the conversations about the great 90s comedies because of more popular, you know, white audience shows like Seinfeld and Friends. But today, Living Single has finally, you know, had a lot of renewed success in reruns on BET and on MTV2, among some other networks. The whole series is now streaming on Hulu, actually. If you, so if you want to check out Living Single and you have Hulu, give it a watch. I think if you watch the first episode, you'll be hooked because it's just a fun, carefree 90s sitcom. Just good shit, man. It's just the kind of show that takes you back to that day. Uh, and there's just something about it that you it's irresistibly charming. And the actors are all good, and, and Queen Latifah is fantastic as a lead in this show. But its theme song, We Are Living Single by Queen Latifah, is our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. I mentioned COVID-19 a lot in the outset of the show, and I don't want to spend you know the whole series just bumming you out and dwelling on it, but I, I just want to tell you because I feel like, you know, this is like we have a, a good relationship here. You and I, I've been honest with you about a lot of things. The COVID-19 pandemic has really frightened me a lot. Um, it's made me uh, just very weary of a lot of things. And it's made me really kind of disappointed in people that I 
you know, had respect for or thought I knew or thought I understood and, and people who were just ignoring this and acting like it's not happening just so they can go out and have, you know, a margarita at Applebee's or some shit. You know what I mean? Like, so they can go and get a haircut. It, it's just amazing to me the uh, kind of things that people will ignore when, you know, every three days during this pandemic, we've lost as many people, as many Americans as we lost, you know, at Pearl Harbor on 9-11 almost. I mean, every three, four days we're, we're having 9-11. Uh, but you wouldn't know that if you listen to a lot of politicians and if you saw what a lot of people are doing when you look at your Instagram feed. Everybody's just kind of back to normal. They just like got over it and moved on. So anyway, the, the whole thing is still weighing heavily on my mind and it's forced me to spend a lot of time watching TV even more than maybe I was before and I always watch a lot of TV. Uh, but I have also been playing video games a lot and uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 has really been getting me through because that game is incredibly relaxing to play and just so uh, immersive that I can just melt hours away into that game and feel pretty good about it and really enjoy it and feel like I've actually done something. You know, I, I kind of do feel like I have when I when I play that game. But I wonder what's getting you through. I've asked you this the last couple months here, and uh, I, I would love to hear from you. What are the things that you're watching that maybe you are outside of your comfort zone? things that you had had on the back burner for a long time that you thought, oh, I'll get around to them, and you never thought you really would, but now you are. Uh, what's getting you through this time? Uh, write me an email, theclintdavis at gmail.com. Is it trashy uh, true crime documentaries? Is it is it trashy Hallmark romance? Is it, uh, I'm just, I'm just imagining it's all, is it trashy reality shows? I've told you about my love for my 600 pound life, which I haven't watched now in a couple, uh, weeks or months actually now I've kind of, my addiction to that went away and I'm, I'm hooked on some other things now, but what's been getting me through just real quick. I want to mention, I have been watching a lot of trashy action movies on Tubi and Tubi is an ad, uh, an app that I've had for a while, but didn't really use that often. Um, I only would use it when I would like search for a movie that I wanted to watch and it was the only place it was streaming on, but I wouldn't actively like just get on Tubi every night and see what was on there. Um, and if you don't have Tubi, it's T U B I and you can get it like on any device. You can get it on a smart TV. I have it on my Apple TV. Um, and Tubi is, is, is great. I mean, it's just this app that's ad supported and it's like IMDB TV. If you have that, it's the same thing. They have a really big lineup of movies and of TV shows actually, but a huge lineup of movies from like all eras, including ones that some that are pretty new, uh, that you can watch on there completely for free. And what you have to do is basically watch like four ad breaks throughout the movie. And, you know, they'll, inevitably come up at a, a time where, you know, you're really into it. But anyway, the uh, ads will play, and the, but the movies are completely uncensored and stuff. So it's, it's just, it's a great way to watch movies, especially if you don't want to pay for some streaming subscription or if, uh, you know, you're just looking for something kind of silly to watch because they do have a lot of really like shitty but good movies on there. And I've been watching like all these action movies that I had missed out on over the years or just hadn't gotten around to yet. Like I've watched like three Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. Um, just all, all completely awful. Uh, I, well, like Bloodsport is, is passable. The, the music's fantastic. And Van Damme is just like 
ripped out of his mind in this movie. So it's kind of just fun to watch a guy who's that ripped be that flexible because he's doing the splits and kicking guys, doing these big roundhouse kicks. So it's a lot of fun. And I, I've just been trying to watch all these movies because I've always liked the movie Roadhouse a lot. So I've been dr- trying to watch all these movies that recreate that kind of that kind of vibe. So I, I've watched The Substitute with Tom Berenger. And that one was, you know, pretty laughable as well. But, you know, it had its moments, too. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty intentionally funny in a few parts, too. But just a lot of just bad, bad action movies that I have been watching, courtesy of Tubi. They're, like, all on there. They've got a bunch of Chuck Norris movies, a bunch of great stuff, if you're looking for that kind of thing. So uh, check out Tubi. There's a lot of actually good movies on there, too. I have watched a few good movies on there, but mostly I've been watching a lot of just trashy bad movies i watched sleepaway camp on there too and i was blown away by how goddamn creepy that movie was especially in the end i feel like the the final i actually tweeted this that i thought the final 20 minutes of sleepaway camp probably had more horrific things in it per minute than any like horror movie i can really remember and i've seen a lot of horror movies over the years but sleepaway camp stunned me in the last 20 minutes and that final shot i will never forget as long as i live it was a just incredibly ballsy ending to that movie and i do mean that literally in case you have not seen or heard of the ending of sleepaway camp uh, another show that kind of got me through the quarantine in the early days was lego masters on fox i enjoyed watching that show it was the it was this reality competition you know lego building show where they brought in basically these big overgrown nerds who are, are obsessed with legos even though they're in their like 30s 40s and 50s and uh, they had them build these crazy things like in 12 hours or so and it was really it was really impressive and fun to watch the production values on the show were really good definitely a cut above the typical kind of competition reality show you would see fox put a lot of money into it and it, the show is actually executive produced by brad pitt so i uh, i was pretty impressed with lego masters i enjoyed it and uh, will arnett did a nice job as the host so it was fun, and the people they got to compete were, uh, you know, mostly fun, mostly likable as well. It was a cool show. So if you didn't watch Lego Masters, I think it's now on Fox's app if you do want to watch that. I recommend it if you like competition shows at all, and if you like engineering at all. I'm not even a big—I'm not that crazy into engineering or architecture or any of that stuff. Uh, but I found a lot of it to be really neat. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a cool show. I liked it more than I thought I would. Let me put it that way. So those are some of the things that have surprisingly gotten me through the uh, coronavirus pandemic. What are some of the things that have surprised you that you've spent time actually watching and being interested in? Uh, Hit me up at theclintdavis at gmail.com. I'm always glad to hear that kind of stuff. So before I take a break, I, I really quickly wanted to wrap up the last dance on ESPN because this was really the television event of the quarantine season. ESPN bumped its premiere up by months. I talked about it last month a little bit. I gave my initial thoughts on the first few episodes and I kind of ripped it a little bit for its, for really the way it hero worships Jordan to such a crazy extent. And it um, just dumps on Jerry Krause who's dead so much it's just completely unfair and and you know the journalistic questions about it being produced by michael jordan's production company all those kind of things i really kind of laid into it last month a little bit but now that the show is over i wanted to mention it and overall i thought this was a really well done 
documentary series in sports and in culture, especially exploring the 1990s and one of the most important figures of the 1990s in Michael Jordan, because you just don't get this kind of access to Michael Jordan ever. He's so notoriously controlling of his image and who he allows to interview him and and who he allows to to film him, you know, even, and he's just, he's crazy controlling over that kind of stuff. So the amount of access that this movie had was unprecedented. And that was what made it something I think that you have to watch. If you have any interest whatsoever in the NBA, NBA history, uh, sports culture, or even pop culture in the nineties, because it's such a great look at this nineties icon. That is Michael Jordan. Is it perfect as far as its balance? Uh, absolutely not. I do think they did a nice job of getting into the warts of Michael Jordan's story and talking about, you know, whether it was his gambling or talking about the ugly rumors that came up when his father was murdered. Um, I think it did a nice job on that. But ultimately, even the flaws of Jordan, the movie found a way to make them okay. Like even his crazy gambling, you know, it goes out of its way a bunch of times to say, well, gambling's legal. Who cares if he's rich and he wants to gamble $100,000 per hole on a golf course? That's fine. Why can't he do that? And, of course, he can do that. You know, he can do that all he wants to until he's broke. But it all goes to speaking to the kind of person Michael Jordan is. And what this movie did, what The Last Dance did for me more than anything, was finally settle the debate to me as far as who you like better, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. And to me... The Last Dance was 100% proof that I will always be a LeBron James guy over Michael Jordan any day of the week because I think for as brilliant as Jordan was on the court, and Jordan, I think, played against better competition than LeBron has. I think Jordan um, played with less great players than LeBron has on his teams, but that's mostly because Jordan is just a fr- he's just an asshole, and LeBron is just, I think, at his core, a nice guy. And you know how difficult it is to be a really nice, good guy that people look up to and also be one of the best guys to ever play your sport? That's almost impossible. I think it's a lot easier to be a dickhead, and that's what Jordan is. And The the Last Dance gets into it so much. He is like the ultimate alpha male, just bully. He just bullies everyone. And he he will spin it in the way of, well, I'm making my teammates better. And, you know, I I help these guys win six. You know, Pip, as he calls him, won six titles, uh, you know, with me because I was there making him better. And basically everything is because of him is what he's saying. And none of these guys would have amounted to shit if Michael Jordan wasn't playing on their team. So just the arrogance comes off the screen so heavily that you almost have to cover your face. You almost have to reach for your COVID mask when you're watching this movie. Um, But LeBron James is not like that. Now, he is definitely gone behind other guys' backs to get them off teams, and he has worked around GMs to get guys on teams that he liked. But I think in the end... Anyone who's played with James would pretty much say that they enjoyed it and would like to play with him again, Uh, whereas with Jordan, I don't think it's the case at all. I think most of the guys that play with him hated him. Really, and and they just didn't, and but they stuck with him because the team was so good, and because he was so good, and his he raised their profile so greatly, um, just by being on the court. So uh, it's a tough thing, but I think this movie really did finally 
prove to everyone that Jordan is a colossal asshole and there's no way you can get around that. The movie did not get into like his life with his, you know, off the court with his wife and their, you know, massive divorce that they had. And it didn't get into his, you know, comeback to basketball with the Washington Wizards. That was something that everyone liked to forget about. It didn't get into his uh, subpar kind of ownership of the, uh, you know, Charlotte NBA franchise and a lot of things it did not get into. Uh, when it comes to Michael Jordan, it, this was not comprehensive from the beginning of his life to the end, but it did cover his time with the Bulls really well. And I think it really did get under why he is the way he is and who he is and what makes him such a feared and, uh, you know, towering figure in sports history. So I think it did a great job in that way, but it definitely settled for me. I would love to sit down and have a drink with LeBron James, but there's no way in hell I'd want to sit down and have a drink with Michael Jordan. He's just, he's a dick. I mean, that's basically it. But I love the way the movie was constructed. The Last Dance was a beautifully made documentary. They took such care in the editing and the writing in this and the way that they would give a different teammate of Jordan their due in each episode and find a way to kind of connect that personal backstory of that guy into what they would end up providing on the court gave them all this kind of superhero collective kind of vibe. Like it really felt like the nineties bulls were being compared to like the Avengers. And here's why, you know, Pippen was the way he was and why he was great and why he wanted more money uh, ultimately. And, and, um, why he felt justified at the time in quitting on the team when they needed him the most, uh, you know, in the middle of a, of a, of a game. So, or at the end of a game, I should say, but it was it got into their backstories enough, I think, and gave them all kind of a superhero vibe, which I really did enjoy. And the episode that featured Steve Kerr's background was especially well written uh, and well put together. It was the penultimate episode, I think, of the entire series, and it was really well done. There was stuff in there I didn't know about Steve Kerr. I didn't know the story about his dad um, being killed in an American embassy and. Um, you know, the, the way that that connected with Jordan's own story. And I, I didn't know that. And it, it made me respect Steve Kerr even more. And I think it was, that was probably the best episode of the whole thing for me. When you're talking about getting into somebody's background, the one on Rodman was, uh, was really good and really telling as well. But, uh, Jordan just not did not come across as an aspirational figure or a role model in this movie unless you're one of those people who think that making a bunch of money is all that matters and being the best, whatever that means, is all that matters and dominating your competition and grinding them down to a nub. If you're obsessed with people who have chips on their shoulders 24-7, uh, then yes, you you will think Michael Jordan is an aspirational figure, but I just don't find him to be that. I think LeBron is much more aspirational, and the fact that uh, you know LeBron is a guy who has opened up schools, you know, in his hometown, and has talked openly many times about social justice initiatives and worn shirts that say "I can't breathe." There is no way in hell Jordan, if this if Jordan played right now, there's no way in hell he'd be showing up on a court wearing a um, wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt or an I Can't Breathe shirt. No way. It would never happen. Because, as he said in the movie, Republicans buy sneakers too, and he's too worried about you know making an extra $100 million on his next deal. So he, the guy's just too shrewd for his own good, really, to be a real human being. And I think uh, you see that in The Last Dance. The guy is, is essentially a machine, and it's, it's unfortunate, but 
that's that's the way it is. And he's a great player, of course, but there was a high cost, I think, to that too. So the last dance, if you missed it, it is streaming right now on ESPN Plus. All the episodes, all ten of them, totally recommend you watch it. It is a very well-made piece of sports uh, uh, documentary filmmaking, um, but it's not the total Michael Jordan story. It's just a, a big piece of it. But this is about as much access as you're ever going to get to MJ. So if you love MJ, you got to watch this uh, show. It was it was one of the better ones that ESPN has done. All right, I'm going to pass things over to Andy. He's going to be talking about great protest music. And if that doesn't get you excited, if that doesn't get your blood going, and if that doesn't change your perspective on some things, a great protest song, then I don't know what will, because that's kind of one of the best ways to get a movement going is to write a great song that captures the moment. So he's going to hit those coming up uh, here in just a minute. Take it away, my friend. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You know, the human soul yearns to be part of progress. It yearns to be part of a solution. And that's probably especially true after months of being cooped up in a house. So on May 30th, I stood with my head bowed in prayer Thousands of people around me. We were in downtown Cleveland. George Floyd died just a few days earlier. And a rally was being held, number one, in his memory, and number two, to address the wider issues facing this country. Similar rallies would be held throughout the country in the days and weeks to come. And my God, was it a gorgeous day. Clear skies, breezy, comfortable. The kind of day that's perfect for a patio and a beer. But not on that day. On that day, the focus was on solidarity, which itself is not change. But it primes the pump for change. 
and we were gathered for a cause, one worth my time and one worth their time. And personally, it felt worthwhile to be part of my city's statement. My city's statement. Whoever cared to look or listen, I would be in a small way, no doubt. But I would be part of that message, and I like that. These issues weren't going away. And the stuff that was happening was not all right. And let me say that, you know, I I, I know a lot of people who are cops. In, In my former profession, I worked with cops from different police departments and had tremendous experiences. And I admire those men and women for the work that they do. Unfortunately, not everybody is good at their job. People in positions of power can abuse that power. If you're not getting it done, and if you're abusing power, it needs to be pointed out. My name is Andy Sedlak, by the way. I am the music editor here at the Stream Police Podcast. If you enjoy what we do, uh, please do us a favor and hop on to uh, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive rating, maybe even a quick review. We would be grateful for whatever you feel like contributing. But while I was standing at this rally back on May 30th at the corner of East 9th Street and Lakeside Avenue, I heard somebody with a boombox playing music. And at first, you know, I could not place the song, but then, oh yeah, yeah, I recognized it. It was this. Hands to the heavens, no man, no weapon. Formed against, yes, glory is destined. Everyday women and men become legends. Sins that go against our skin become blessings. The movement is a rhythm to us. Freedom is like religion to us. Justice is juxtaposition in us. Justice for all just ain't specific enough. One son died, the spirit is revisiting us. True and living, living in us. Resistance is us. That's why Rosa sat on the bus. That's why we walk through Ferguson with our hands up. When it go down, we woman and man up. They say stay down and we stand up. Shots, we on the ground. The camera panned up. King pointed to the mountaintop and we ran up. One day when the glory comes, it will be ours. It will be That's Glory by Common and John Legend, the latter an Ohio boy, the former, I think, from Chicago. The song won an Oscar in 2015, and it got me thinking about quote-unquote protest music. Protest music. So that's what I want to talk about. Today, uh, I want to discuss protest songs, and in light of recent events, it feels like an appropriate time to do it. Here is one that's been rattling around in my head for the past few days. It's Be Free by the great J. Cole. Can you tell me why Every time I step out 
Protest music dates back forever. I mean, you know, Irish rebel songs were hot in the early 1900s. There have been many, many songs about class, feminism, gay rights, AIDS, poverty, unions, the banking system, corrupt religious institutions, government oppression, war, war, and more war. The list goes on. Those issues never go away. But in the 1980s and 90s, a new form of protest song emerged. Protesting police brutality. As of today, it is the most common type of protest song that people hear. Maybe after anti-war songs or, or feminist songs. After George Floyd's murder, it has surpassed all other issues. Even a once every hundred years global pandemic to become the most discussed issue in the country. Here's Tupac discussing the issue in 1992. It's like he could have said this yesterday. I'm really, it's happened to me. The police beat me up in the middle of the street for no reason, just simply because I cursed at them because they were harassing me and I cursed at them. Now they beat me up. Now, in reality, I couldn't shoot them. Like in my rhymes, I would say, you know what I'm saying, Pow, pow, you know what I'm saying? It was a shootout, but I couldn't do that in reality. But in my rhymes, it, it vents that anger because I can, I can, you know, fire back at the police and won't go to jail for, for life. I would rather tell a young black male to um, educate his mind, arm yourself, and be free and, and defend yourself than, you know, just sit there and turn the other cheek. So whatever message that sends out, that's the kind of message it is. He goes on to perfectly lay out exactly what a protest song is. Listen to this. In my music, and in a lot of this music, it's only talking, it's only talking about the suppressed rising, I mean the oppressed rising up against the oppressor. That's, all, that's what my music's about. The oppressed rising up against the oppressor. So if only people that are scared are the oppressors. The only people who have any harm coming to them are those who oppress. Simple as that. That is protest music in a nutshell. In one form or another, it's all about the oppressed rising up against the oppressor. That's what Common was rapping about. That's what J. Cole was rapping about. And there are a million different types of oppression, unfortunately. Which gives way to the sheer variety of protest songs. Here's Chuck D. of Public Enemy talking about protest music. But Sam Cooke and Curtis Mayfield and later on James Brown, all they did is reflect the movement of the people trying to rebel against the, the, the atmosphere that was working against you know, black folks for hundreds of years. And although the paper said that black folks were free in 1865, it took 100 years for the country to recognize that, and that didn't come without a voice being heard and being screamed or sang. So freedom songs and protest songs came out of, of the black element when you, the, the talking voice was stifled in many cases. 
you need to know how to interpret protest music. It's one area of music where a certain amount of legwork is needed to understand the issue being addressed. And only after you've wrapped your arms around the issue can you determine whether the song is good or bad. This leads me to NWA. They wrote and released arguably the angriest and most controversial song about police brutality. The infamous Fuck the Police came out in 1988. It was never released as a single, but the group did receive a letter from the FBI after Straight Outta Compton, the album, came out. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it back because I'm brown. And not the other color, so police think they have the authority to kill a minority. Fuck that shit because I ain't the one for a punk motherfucker with a badge and a gun to be beaten on. And thrown in jail, we can go toe-to-toe in the middle of a cell. Fucking with me because I'm a teenager with a little bit of gold and a pager. Searching my car, looking for the product, thinking every nigga is selling narcotics. If you take it at face value, or if you half listen, which a lot of people do, the song seems to condemn cops, all cops, the police, period. The song seems to issue a blanket statement. And it's hard not to hear it that way upon first listen. Tired of the motherfucking jacking. Sweat my gang while I'm chilling in the shack and shining the light in my face. And for what? Maybe it's because I kick so much, but I kick ass. Or maybe because I blast on a stupid ass nigga when I'm playing with the trigger of an Uzi or an AK. Because the police always got something stupid to say. They put out my picture with silence. Because my identity by itself causes violence. But you have to know how to listen to protest music. You have to know how to listen to protest music. Songs like this are written to an extent... To antagonize. There is anger behind it. And the writer believes that the anger or pain deserves attention. The choice to antagonize is a direct response to the pain that prompted the writing of the song. You may say, well, why are you coming after me? I didn't do anything. They're not coming after you. They're going after the powers that be. But they need you to give the song momentum and to give the song force so that it reaches those powers. If you know how to listen to protest music, you know it's designed to be outrageous in order to get attention. And the guys in NWA had upbringings that they felt justified their anger. And frustration and bleak humor. Yeah, there's actually there's a lot of humor in that song. Now, here's where protest music becomes complex. Here's where it becomes complicated. There's danger in the distance between intention and perception. Those are two different things. How the public hears your song is not always in line with the intention you had while writing it. I'm not trying to speak for anybody in NWA. But it was heard by the mass public, not for its nuances, but for its anger, first and foremost. 
in what seemed like a statement against all cops. They heard the anger, missed the message. The song was about the ones that Ice Cube and and others dealt with directly. But they didn't say that in the title. They just said, the police. There was a disconnect between the message and its interpretation. Was this the public's fault for not listening well enough? Or was it the artist's fault for not crafting a message to be easily interpreted? Or is it both? I think if you asked Ice Cube or Dr. Dre now, they would clarify the feelings that led to the writing of that song. In fact, I know they would. Here's Ice Cube in 2015. That's, uh, let's see, it's 27 years after the song came out. I always looked at our songs and our record as 400 years late. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So this has been a constant with us. That's why we made the record. And that's why it's still relevant today. You know, it's it's a constant situation between the powers that be and the neighborhoods that we come from. And, you know, most of the time you look and you see that it's, it's a thing where somebody's abusing their authority or abusing their power. They viewed the frustrations in that song as 400 years too late. Here's Dr. Dre from the same interview. Yeah, we were just trying to shine a light on it. Remember, there was no camera phones back then. You know what I mean? So we were just trying to shine a light on the problem, something that everybody in our neighborhood knew exists, but some people in the suburbs didn't know about it or maybe even didn't care. These songs are written to antagonize. They are written to get attention. That's the sole purpose of the song. It's arguably the only type of song that's designed not to sell. It's not designed to dance to. It's not designed to cruise to. It's designed to do two things. To wake you up and to make you think. To wake you up and to make you think. Here's Neil Young. A lot of people have described my work as as over the top and angry and seething and full of hate and all of this. I, I don't have hate. I don't contain hate. Hate is not a catalyst for change. I, I, I'm not there with that. I, I, they may construe my music as being angry because I'm pointing out things that bother me. And when I sing them, I think I sing them from almost a sad place. Sad for the, what's happened to America. There's nothing sadder than a protest song that was written years ago, but feels like it's new. That means the issue hasn't gone anywhere. In 1998, New York City police fired 41 shots at an African immigrant named Amadou Diallo. He did not have a weapon and posed no threat. Police said he resembled a suspect in a rape case. He reached for his wallet to show his ID. The cops figured he was reaching for a gun, and they fired 41 shots at him. Obviously, he was killed in that incident. The officers were later acquitted. Bruce Springsteen wrote a song about it. The second verse about a mother speaking to her black son about how to interact with cops is particularly relevant in 2020. Here it is. 41 shots Lena gets her son ready for school She says on these streets Charles You've got to understand the rules If an officer stops you promise me you'll always be polite 
Sometimes there is a price to pay for taking a stance. The New York City Police Union called for a boycott of Springsteen's music in 2000. However, he was later awarded by the NAACP for writing the song. The Dixie Chicks are a famous example of taking a hit for their opinions. It wasn't necessarily due to a song, but in 2003, they were critical of President George W. Bush on stage. You could easily argue that their careers haven't been the same since. Nina Simone's career took a hit when she released Mississippi Goddamn in 1964. It was about racial tensions in the South, released at the very beginning of the super-organized civil rights struggle of the 1960s. This is Mississippi Goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. Perhaps the most poignant song I can offer is by Erica Garner. Erica Garner. She is the daughter of Eric Garner, who was put into a chokehold by police... In 2014, he was suspected of selling individual cigarettes, which uh, is a crime, but obviously a nonviolent one. The chokehold that killed him was captured by a cell phone, and while Garner was in that chokehold, he stated, I can't breathe. He told police, I can't breathe, 11 times. He then died. Uh, The medical examiner of New York ruled it a homicide. The officer was not indicted. Erica Garner took uh, audio of her father saying, I can't breathe, and she looped it. And she sang over it. And then she put out a song that's called This Ends Today. It's credited to the Garner family. Eric Garner's statements of I can't breathe obviously conjure up images of George Floyd's death as well. This is um, This is This Ends Today. Who is the man with the strength to choose when the rest refuse and say listens to You don't know your will. It's sad how my brother Eric Gardner was killed. The pain in my heart still refuses to heal. Today, some police be plotting to kill. Life should be protected if justice is real. Do you know how we feel? 
All he had to do was let his lungs refill. I guess he decided it was best he be killed. Now his kids is without their next meal. The provider of the family no longer can pay his bill. The grand jury lost their minds. Time for an appeal. If Eric was family, they would know how we feel. Powerful stuff. I'll leave it there. Friends, you know that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find this playlist on Spotify. Just search Stream Police. Every month, we add five more songs to this playlist. And here is your first one for the month of... What is what is this? This is uh, June. For the month of June. <laughs> it's, it's hard to tell these days. Uh, the first song is uh, Come On. This is by Zap. Roger Troutman of Zap was uh, from Dayton, Ohio. Just a small aside. The second song is That's How Strong My Love Is by Otis Redding. I'll be the moon when the sun goes down Just to let you know that I'm still around That's how strong I love you That's how strong Third, it's I Got My Eyes on You by Gary Clark Jr. I got my eyes on you, no turning back. Lock and loading, I'm gonna lay you down. I got my eyes on you, no turning back. Now, lock and loading, I'm gonna Then it's Not the Staying Kind by Lou Rawls. Finally, he recorded this song a bunch of times, but this version from 1977 is among the best recordings in the history of music. No hyperbole. It's Manish Boy by Muddy Waters. Yeah. 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 
Alright friends, that's it. Be good. Stay safe. Stand for something. Back to Clint. Peace. Alright my friend, here is to the day where we can get together once again, talk about the old days like we always like to, and uh, talk for two or three hours about uh, Bob Dylan tracks that we have already talked about a hundred times before, but keep finding new meanings in, uh, and, and old noir films as well. I know that's one of your favorite topics of conversation. Here is to that day, my friend. All right. Uh, once again, I'm Clint Davis. I talk movies and TV here on the stream police. And, uh, let me get back to my job here on the show. And, and like I told you at the beginning of the episode, I wanted to spend this episode really talking a lot about, films and television created by black artists in Hollywood and especially ones that you are able to watch now easily. So I want to run down for you um, great movies that I've seen and can tell you that I love that were made by black directors that you can stream right now uh, depending on which service you have. So I'm going to give you some that are on Netflix. I'm going to give you some on Prime Video, Hulu, HBO Max, um, I got some other ones in here as well, including the aforementioned Tubi. So let's get right to it. First off, this movie is not streaming anywhere, but I just want to tell you the the one movie I would recommend you watch if you have never seen it. And if you haven't seen it, you're long overdue to watch it anyway. But right now, it's so appropriate with where the conversation is in this entire world, really. Uh, and that is Spike Lee's masterpiece, Do the Right Thing. I consider it to be one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, by anyone. And and Spike Lee has made several of the movies that I consider to be the best of the 1990s, um, of the 2000s. I, I think he's just one of the truly, you know, great filmmakers that we've ever had. And Do the Right Thing is, the, is his peak to me and to a lot of people as well. It's just one of those movies you always see it on lists of the greatest movies ever made. And, and it really is. There's a reason for that. Just everything, the, the color motifs, the, the sense of the temperature, the actual heat wave coming off the screen. You can like feel the heat in your living room, even if it's you got the air conditioning cranked up. All of that leading to this huge moment. Uh, at the end of the movie that is so stunning, uh, but you could see it coming all the way through and it, just this community falling apart because the threads are so thin and stretched so tightly, even though on the surface at the beginning, themes, things in this neighborhood in Brooklyn seem to be, um, you know, somewhat harmonious. They are anything but, and you get into it, uh, all the factors as to why, all the socioeconomic factors, all the racial factors, and all the hatred and paranoia that goes into living in a melting pot. That's what Do the Right Thing is about. And the ending is just uh, one that 
really will resonate with you today and it will look like things that you've seen on your own television. And Spike Lee wrote that movie and directed it uh, more than 30 years ago. So it's just still ever, as relevant as ever. And it's a masterpiece, but it's not streaming anywhere right now for free. So you'd have to rent it, pay, but pay for the rental. It's like a $3 rental in high def. And it's a gorgeous movie. Great music as well. Um, and one of the best opening title sequences in the history of cinema. So do the right thing. I couldn't recommend it more. It's one of my, you know, probably in my top 10 movies ever made. So I couldn't recommend that one anymore. But Spike Lee does have several movies streaming across, you know, the internet right now. I'm going to give you a few of them in this list. One of them, or actually two of them are on Netflix. First off, I want to throw at you 1992's Malcolm X. So riding off the wave of Do the Right Thing that gave him all this critical acclaim and uh, gave him all this kind of prestige in the industry, even though he didn't, you know, it would take him still another 20 years to win an Oscar, 30 years to win an Oscar almost. Uh, Spike Lee makes this epic biopic about the divisive civil rights figure Malcolm X. And this is like a four-hour film that just covers Malcolm X's life really from start to finish. It's as in-depth a biopic as you're going to see. Gritty. Uh, it's a great New York movie. It's also a beautiful uh, location film when when Malcolm X is, is traveling around the world kind of toward the end of the thing. And in the center of this movie is... Denzel Washington giving one of the most dialed in and intense performances you'll ever see. It's four hours of Denzel basically in every, almost every single scene. Uh, and he just dials into Malcolm X so well. Like he, I mean, he ends up looking like him. He sounds like him. It, you forget you're watching Denzel and you feel like you're watching Malcolm X when really you're watching one of the biggest movie stars in Hollywood history give a performance. But he's so good in it that it's just, it's amazing to me that he didn't win an Oscar for doing that performance because it is a powerhouse. But anyway, if you have four hours and I think you should give it to this movie, if you don't know anything about Malcolm X, the film will teach you a lot. It, Spike pulls out all the, the tricks he learned in film school for making this. And it's really one that I think he's been proud of for a long time and he really should be. So it's on Netflix right now. It is 1992's Malcolm X. One more Spike Lee movie on Netflix for you. I want you to watch is 1996's get on the bus. And this one is also about the civil rights movement, but it's such a, a more like quiet, uh, contemplative movie about the civil rights movement. It's not, it doesn't have the intensity that Malcolm X or that do the right thing has. It's not in your face. Get on the bus is not an in your face movie. Uh, but it is full of these great kind of character dialogue moments, arguments about the tough conversations that should be happening. And what it's about is, so the Million Man March was in 1995. The movie comes out in 1996. And uh, Spike directs this just fantastic tale, this fictional tale of 15 men, all black, getting on the bus from Los Angeles and going all the way to Washington, D.C. So it's a cross-country road trip movie, but it's just this intergenerational mix of, of 15 black men um, who don't really have a lot in common with each other except for the color of their skin. 
and what they're riding on the bus for and where they're going to end up going. So it's just a fascinating look at uh, how the generations of black Americans see each other and can relate to each other and also can't relate to each other. The generational divides, even though there's a lot of pain that they share, there's things that the younger people in the 90s didn't understand that the older people went through, but the views that the, that they have, they also don't understand those. So uh, Get on the Bus is a, a beautiful, really well done movie, and it's one of Spike's best, and it's one of his most overlooked as well. So... Um, this was one that I, I saw for the first time in a college film class. I had never seen it. Uh, I was already a big Spike Lee fan, but I hadn't seen Get on the Bus. Um, and it's one of my favorites. I, I really love this one. So if you, if you have a chance, uh, check it out. Much more small movie than Spike usually does. He does a lot of bigger ones. This is a small movie, and it's it's really, really well done uh, with a, a great cast of, a uh, big ensemble cast of actors. So 1996 is Get on the Bus, also on Netflix for you from Spike Lee. I'm going to throw one at you from 2017 now by a black woman filmmaker named Dee Rees. And this movie is called Mudbound. This is one that Netflix actually produced. It was a Netflix original film. And it is the best Netflix original movie that I've personally watched. I haven't watched a ton of their original movies, but this one really knocked me on my ass. It was one of those that uh, was up for some Oscars uh, in 2018, but... I don't remember it really winning much, but anyway, it was it was a movie that I thought could have done really well because there's just a lot in it that is powerful, striking, uh, dramatic, um, and just great storytelling. And I think D. Rees uh, really shows you a lot of ugly moments uh, of things that could have happened in American history uh, but happen to be fictional, but they're not that far off from the real truth. But the movie is a period piece. It's about a couple of World War II veterans who uh, come back to, you know, their hometown in rural Mississippi, and each of them are suffering from PTSD. And, you know, but anyway, one of the soldiers is white, one of the soldiers is black, and it's just a, a really great movie about duality and about the things that both of these men are going through uh, separately, but also together um, and the kind of shared history that they have, but also the uh, big difference between them that makes their lives very different. It's, it's got a really good cast in it, too. It's got Carrie Mulligan in it, Jason Clark, uh, Mary J. Blige gave a really good performance in this movie. Jonathan Banks is very good in it. Uh, but again, Dee Rees, who also co-wrote the screenplay, just does a fantastic job. It was an adaptation, um, and I never read the book, but I loved the movie. I, Mudbound really blew me away when it came out. It was a, a, an outstanding drama. So check that out on Netflix now uh, if you have some time as well. Uh, but the best movie on Netflix that I can recommend to you from a black director is Moonlight from 2016, the Best Picture winner. Um, I told you a couple episodes ago when I wrapped up my 10 favorite movies of the 2010s, I told you I thought Moonlight was the best movie of the entire decade, and I stand by that. Uh, it's just a, one of those that I will never forget. You have those movies you saw in theaters, and I remember most movies I see in theaters. I'm just, I have a weird memory for that. They're like all important to me in little ways, but Moonlight was one I will never forget when the ending credits rolled and just being shaken and blown away by the storytelling in this movie that really is a small movie about, it's about one guy, one character um, in three different periods of his life. And, you know, it gets into race and it gets into sexual identity and it gets into identity period and it gets into, uh, you know, family background and um 
you know, it, it, it's just a, it's an, an amazing movie and it, it blew me away. It continues to blow me away. Barry Jenkins, just uh, one of the great debut directorial debuts in the history of cinema. So Moonlight from 2016, if you still haven't watched it, please watch this movie. I've told you a million times, watch Moonlight. And if you haven't yet, I don't know how many more times I can tell you, but I will continue to tell you to watch that film. But it is on Netflix now. And to me, that's the best one I can recommend to you. But all those are good. Add them to your list. Malcolm X, Moonlight, Get on the Bus, Mudbound, all four great films done by black filmmakers. All right, let's go to Prime Video. If you have Amazon Prime Video, here's three movies that I want you to watch. Actually, I'm going to give you four. Four movies on Prime Video by black directors that I want you to sit down and watch. Let's start first off with Creed and Creed 2. Okay, both of these movies are on Amazon Prime Video, and they are both powerhouse as hell. Uh, the first Creed, which is like a spinoff movie of the Rocky franchise, and it has Rocky Balboa in it. Of course, Sylvester Stallone comes back and plays, you know, the old aging fighter toward the end of his life now and stepping in and helping train the son of his old nemesis, Apollo Creed. Nemesis and friend, I should say. But anyway, Creed is about the son of Apollo Creed, Adonis Creed, who's played by the great uh, Michael B. Jordan. And Michael B. Jordan, unlike Michael Jordan, is someone that I would like to hang out with and have a drink with, I think. But Michael B. Jordan is just so, he's so ripped in this movie. Like, he looks incredible. He looks like, I mean, he's too ripped to be a boxer, really. Like, you just don't see boxers that look like this. But he's just impressive to watch, and he gives such a dialed-in, intense performance. And you, I love when people take a sports movie and they take it seriously. Um, and that's what Creed really was, the, the whole attitude of it. And it was directed by Ryan Coogler, who to me is the best up and coming black filmmaker that I know of. Um, my favorite, absolutely one of my favorite directors uh, on the planet right now. I love everything Ryan Coogler has done. And uh, he did Creed before he did Black Panther. That was the movie that made him a household name. But Creed was a blockbuster that a lot of people loved, and it really, again, showed what he could do with a movie that had a lot of energy behind it. And the soundtrack is great, the performances are all good, and it's just a cool movie. That scene where, you know, Adonis Creed is watching the old fight footage of his dad on the huge projection screen, and he's boxing, shadow boxing along, and he's fighting his dad because he, like, hates him because he feels like his dad abandoned him because he died. It is such a powerful and unforgettable scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in recent cinema history, and it gives me chills every time I watch it. Uh, Creed 2 is also on Amazon Prime Video, and it was not directed by Ryan Coogler, but it was directed by Stephen Capel Jr., who is another black filmmaker who's actually from Cleveland. So uh, he's a young director, just kind of getting started out uh, from Cleveland, and uh, he stepped in for Coogler and, and made Creed two, and he did a really nice job with it. It's a good sequel. It doesn't, you know, embarrass the first one in any way, and the first one was a really good movie. So I thought it, I thought it was a lot of fun to watch. It, it, it took the Rocky story and the connections between the two movies in an interesting new direction, and the training sequence was another, you know, instant classic, and the fight was well directed and. Cable did a nice job, so I, I really liked Creed 2 also. I mean, it wasn't as good as the first one, but the sequels almost never are. But it was still, it was a fun Friday night watch. So Creed and Creed 2 on Prime Video now if you want to check them out. I'm also going to give you from 2009, Notorious, directed by George Tillman Jr. This was the um, 
biopic of uh, the notorious B.I.G. and Christopher Wallace. And uh, I thought this one was a really good. This came out in that wave of music biopics, like after Walk the Line and Ray came out. And it seemed like every year there were 25 music biopics coming out. They're still making them now. But they were really hot at that time in 2009. And Notorious was like a cut above some of the other ones. I thought especially of the R-rated ones, it was really good. And um, just a just a, a great look into a guy that's been mythologized at this point um, and who just died so young and so tragically. Uh, and the use of his music in the film is really well done. And the woman who played Lil' Kim, I thought, did a great job. But George Tillman Jr., uh, did a, a good job bringing this film to screen, and I think it was kind of a good chest-puffing, um, you know, movie with a lot of attitude and swagger in it that uh, the notorious B.I.G. probably himself would have been proud to see on the screen. So that one is also on Prime Video, Notorious from 2009. Uh, one more on Prime Video, and this is my favorite of all the ones I've mentioned from 1999. It is The Wood. This uh, is one of those comedies that. I discovered when I, shortly after it came out, I was probably like 12 years old, 13 years old at the video store. And, and I, I was watching MTV a lot at that time, 1999, 2000. And this was an MTV film. It was a theatrical film directed or it was produced by MTV's, you know, film studio. And so, of course, I wanted to see it. And it was it was just a cool, fun movie. And what it was about was some buddies uh, who get together for one of their weddings and they're remembering their days of living uh, in Inglewood, California, and uh, they're remembering their childhood. And it's a good um Classic kind of coming of age deal, which you don't see often with people of color uh, as the main characters. But this is a, you know, just a really good cast of black men who have been lifelong friends and uh, who were there for each other through whatever. And uh, I, the Woods is a beautiful movie. It's really funny and it's 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 very well done. It's a it's a really good movie. Tay Diggs and uh, Omar Epps just do a really nice job in this. And Rick Famuyiwa is the director of this one. Uh, another uh, black director who who made a, a great film that was, you know, a minor hit uh, when it came out. So The Wood from 1999 on Prime Video, uh, that's a really nice, easy watch that I think you will enjoy. And you'll get some laughs out of it, and you'll feel good. It's just a feel-good, cool movie. It's, it's awesome. Uh, I, I can't recommend The Wood enough. That's one of my favorite little kind of hidden gem movies that a lot of people haven't seen from the 1990s, from the tail end of the century. All right, I'm going to jump over to HBO Max now. So I'm going to talk more about HBO Max next month uh, when we get together again here on the Stream Police because I've been playing around with it now for a couple weeks. But HBO Max actually has a pretty good selection of films directed by black filmmakers on there right now, including one of my absolute favorite movies. Again, I'm going to go to Spike Lee, and this time it's 1998's He Got Game. Uh, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see I watched this movie a couple months ago again. I've seen it 100 times in my life. It's one of those I keep going back to. Uh, and I said I, it might be my favorite sports movie ever made. It's hyperbole, totally, but it, it's just a perfect sports movie to me because it, it doesn't have the big cheesy game, but it does have this great climax payoff. And what He Got Game is about is it has Denzel Washington playing this man who's been in prison uh, for murder, and he gets to get out in order to convince his son, who happens to be the number one basketball prospect in the country, um, he has to convince his son to go to the alma mater 
uh, of the warden of the or of the governor actually of the state that he lives in, and so the warden will give him time off of his sentence, something like that. So he's not in jail for murder; he's in jail for I, I think it's like uh, manslaughter is actually I think what it was. But anyway, he's serving a big sentence, and he'll it'll get cut down a lot if he's able to convince his son who hates him for going to prison uh, and for the crime he committed. Uh, he has to convince him and he has to kind of like repair his relationship with him over the course of a few days. And it all leads to this really epic swelling climax that I, I love watching every time it plays out. And Ray Allen plays the son, the NBA uh, hall of famer. He had never acted before and he does a really good job as far as performances by non-actors. I think Ray Allen and he got game is one of the absolute best. He just gives a soulful performance that uh, makes you really believe this guy and not just because he looks the part, not just because he shoots a great jump shot. You just you feel for him. Because uh, there's a lot of people pulling this kid in a lot of directions. Um, and his name is great. Jesus Shuttlesworth is the name of the character. So uh, he got games just awesome. And the music, all it's all Aaron Copeland classical music playing over top of these guys playing street basketball in New York. Wonderful choice by Spike Lee. He he goes against the grain of playing hip hop music over guys playing street ball, and he goes with classical, uh, and not even classical, but like classic American classical kind of music that you think of frontier music, cowboy music, over top of these guys playing really intense pickup basketball games. So uh, he got game is just a bold artistic movie, and I love it. It's absolutely one of my favorites. It's on HBO Max right now. Check it out. He got game. I'm also going to recommend to you the Defiant Ones from 2017. This was the TV, uh, the the music documentary that was about Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine, um, and it it was a, a really stylistically fun movie to watch. Uh, it, it didn't, I mean, it wasn't like the best thing I've ever seen. It was again full of a lot of hero worship for Dre and Iovine, but it's a cool movie about how. Dre ended up becoming a billionaire and all the kind of brilliant things that he did and the uh, ways that he pioneered um, the the sound of hip-hop music that would end up becoming ubiquitous in the early 1990s and, and why he was behind a lot of that stuff. So uh, the Defiant Ones is, is really well done. The stuff about Iveen I thought was less interesting, but the stuff about Dre is really good. In the early days of NWA, it's fascinating to go into. And that one was directed by Alan Hughes, who was one half of the Hughes brothers, who uh, did a couple other movies that I really like, including one that I'm going to recommend to you now from Hoopla. So again, The Defiant Ones is on HBO Max. Check that out. It's a cool movie, cool documentary. But on Hoopla now, and Hoopla is the is another free service. If you have a library card, that's all you need to have a Hoopla account, and you can watch, like, I think you get, like, 15 titles you can watch per month, and you borrow them like you would through the library, and then you, you turn, them, turn them back in, even though you're just watching them digitally on your television. But anyway, on Hoopla right now, they've got 1995's Dead Presidents, um, and this is a really just cool, slick heist movie, if you like heist flicks. This is like uh, an all-black cast, really, um, directed by the Hughes brothers, who uh, were, are, I should say, brothers, um, who did another one of my favorite movies of the 90s, uh, Menace to Society. That is such a hardcore, hard-ass movie, just tough movie to watch. But the Hughes brothers did Menace to Society, and then they followed it up with Dead Presidents. And it's a period movie. It's about, like, these guys are Vietnam vets, uh, black Vietnam vets coming back and, and trying to 
do something to, to get their lives back together and uh, after the country is just shit on them after they come back to the country and so they decide to pull this heist off and basically everything goes wrong and it's a really grim movie it's kind of akin to Reservoir Dogs a little bit but more topical uh, and it's a it's just a cool film again it's got great soundtrack as well so Dead Presidents from 1995 is on Hoopla now if you're looking for something to watch. Um, if you have USA, if you've got like a cable subscription and you have USA on your cable subscription, download the USA app and watch Friday from 1995. Again, uh, Friday is one of the great comedies of the 1990s. Absolutely one of the funniest movies ever made still. John Witherspoon's performance as Ice Cube's dad is one of those like essential it's like up there with you know john belushi in animal house as far as the best comedic performances i can think of judge smales and caddyshack he's just so funny and so poignant though as well when he has to be um and friday's a movie that ultimately has a great message but is just a really funny film where you're just spending a day with these kind of you know slacker guys who in south central los angeles and they're just watching what's going on on their street and the cast of characters that come by. And uh, it's it's just a fun movie to watch. It never gets old. Friday is a timeless movie that I hope will be inducted by the Library of Congress uh, in a few years because it just is timeless and perfect and it never will get old. It's, it's, it's a perfect film. Uh, and it was directed by F. Gary Gray, who would end up doing a bunch of great movies. He did The Negotiator. He did Straight Outta Compton. He did The Italian Job remake, which was pretty good. Um, but yeah, F. Gary Gray started out with Friday, and he did a wonderful job. It's 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 stellar. So that is on the USA app right now. If you uh, happen to have it, I'm also going to tell you. Uh, I, I told you I love Ryan Coogler. His other two movies are streaming right now for you. If you have Disney Plus, Black Panther is streaming on Disney Plus, and that was the biggest movie ever directed by a black filmmaker. So that's worth watching just for that if you didn't see it. But, you know, Black Panther, if you were living under a rock and you, you were one of the few people that didn't watch it the first time, I a lot of I don't know why people were disappointed when they saw Black Panther. It was like people were expecting something that they didn't get. Like, I don't know if they were expecting Citizen Kane or something. I mean, it's a Marvel movie, so it's like don't go into it thinking it's going to be like the greatest film ever made. But what makes Black Panther so good? A lot of reasons. Coogler is a, is a brilliant director that few can match up with in terms of craftsmanship and storytelling ability. The, the performances are serious and intense. Michael B. Jordan as the villain is, is just perfect. Um, and he's so dialed in and he shows you what being a great villain can do to elevate a genre film like this one. Uh, but the, just the special effects look great. The whole idea of this secret world, this secret country in Africa where it's run by black people people it's run by africans um essentially and they have the world's best technology and they have the world's smartest minds and it's just a, like a real fantasy i have to imagine for any black filmmaker or for any black audiences going in and watching this and i and i just thought the movie was so full of life and energy and to see a cast that's almost all black being in this multi-million dollar disney blockbuster um, in the Marvel brand was so mind-blowing because it just didn't, you know, black characters were always like token one car one side role. It's going to be a black guy and that's it. Usually like the friend, it'll be a black guy, something like that. 
he'll be funny and he'll be likable, but you know, he's not going to really matter that much at the end of the day. But Black Panther was all black, essentially. And it was really revolutionary in that way. And it was so well done. It wasn't just, it wasn't just that that made it good. It's just a great movie. It's just intense, man. And the music's awesome. One of the best soundtracks of recent memory. So Black Panther is now on Disney Plus if you want to watch that. And finally, one final film I want to give you by uh, a black filmmaker. Again, I'm going to talk about Ryan Coogler because I love Ryan Coogler. He, this was the movie that put him on the map, 2013's Fruitvale Station, and it is streaming now on Tubi, the aforementioned Tubi, where I said they have all those shitty Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. Buried under all the sweaty kung fu films is Fruitvale Station, a beautiful, moving film. Again, it stars Michael B. Jordan in one of his uh, early film roles um and it's a true story and it's a movie that really is all about it's a it's about a young black man that was killed by police in oakland uh not that long ago and the movie feels so timely now because of everything that's going on and it is just a a movie about this kid's life it's not about him being killed it's about his life and what was taken away when he was killed because he was just a regular guy really um he wasn't some really special person with all these abilities. And, you know, we didn't lose, like, the great scientific mind that was going to cure cancer. We lost a, just a, He was a guy, essentially. But he gets killed in such a meaningless, pointless, and, and, and vicious way by people who... He's paying their salaries by paying taxes. And people that are sworn to protect his life, um, and they kill him over nothing. So uh, it's... It, Fruitvale Station is a heartbreaker, and it made me cry when I saw it in the theater. It's another one I'll never forget. I remember seeing it in theater and and, uh, having tears coming out of my eyes um, as the film got toward the end. And uh, but it's just a a stunning film, and I think Fruitvale Station will go down as a classic of this era when it's all said and done, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement. It it predated the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, but it, it could be the perfect movie. For that movement as well. So anyway, those are all the films I want to recommend to you that I've seen that I love. There, there are a lot more great movies by black filmmakers streaming right now that I have not seen yet. Like I haven't watched Eve's Bayou yet by Casey Lemons, uh, but that's on HBO Max as well. I have not watched Set It Off by F. Gary Gray, but that's on HBO Max also. Um, I haven't seen The Secret Life of Bees. That one was by Gina Prince Blythewood, who also did Love and Basketball. Uh, that one's streaming on Stars right now. But uh, there are a lot of really good ones out there that I haven't even watched yet. But I wanted to give you the ones I've seen so I know I can tell you with authority that they are good, great, great movie. The ones I listed to you are great. Um, and you should definitely add them to your list. So, again, on Netflix, I'm, I'm giving you Malcolm X, Moonlight, Get on the Bus, and Mudbound. On Prime Video, I'm giving you The Wood, Notorious, Creed, and Creed 2. On HBO Max, I'm giving you The Defiant Ones and He Got Game. On Hoopla, I'm giving you Dead Presidents. On USA, I'm giving you Friday. On Tubi, I'm giving you Fruitvale Station. And on Disney Plus, I'm giving you Black Panther. That's a pretty good lineup of great cinema done by black directors. It's not black cinema. It's just cinema done by black directors, which unfortunately is such a rare thing and has been such a rare thing that it has to be called like it's almost its own genre. Like just because a black person does a movie and it happens to feature black actors, it's called black cinema. But when Martin Scorsese does a movie with Robert De Niro for the hundredth time, it's not called white cinema. 
it's not even called like Italian American cinema. It's just cinema. But when Ryan Coogler, Coogler does a movie with uh, Michael B. Jordan, it's black cinema. So that's unfortunate. And hopefully we're moving beyond those kinds of pointless characterizations um, of films. All right, last thing I'm going to drop on you here before I say goodbye this month, my friend, is the best thing I watched this month. And I did not watch a lot of great, dramatic cinema this past month. I told you I watched a lot of trashy stuff. But I did watch some of the classics of the exploitation era um, on Tubi as well. Tubi has a bunch of the old exploitation movies. It's got a lot of the Rudy Ray Moore, like uh, Dolomites on there. I watched that for the first time. I hadn't seen that one. Uh, so funny and <laughs> fun to watch and so terrible in so many ways as well. Um, but they've got that one. They've got Disco Godfather. Um, they got Petey Wheatstraw. They've got a bunch of really good exploitation movies from that era. But Tubi also right now has Coffee, and a Prime Video actually has it right now. And I watched it uh, just this month for the first time, 1973's Coffee with Pam Greer. Uh, not directed by a black director, directed by a white director, but still a majority black cast and led by Pam Greer, who is just the ultimate ass kicker in this movie. This film was just so loaded with attitude, unapologetic attitude, sex. Um, The camera just ogles Pam Greer's body so often in the film that it can be uncomfortable. But at the same time, you never feel like she's being taking advantage of at all it's almost like you feel like pam greer told them uh, like they were like yeah we're just we're done with this scene now we can just uh you know have you slip your dress off and we'll cut away we'll kind of look at the wall and she's like no god damn it i didn't get in this shape so that you could wouldn't show me naked on on film i mean i'm sure that's not the way it went but you almost feel like that's the way it went because she's so in charge in this movie she's just so strong and tough uh and coffee if you've never seen it is about a nurse who works like in an emergency room who ends up going on this revenge rampage where she murders all these drug dealers and and the people at the top of the drug organization in her city uh, because they've essentially like put her kid sister in rehab uh, and gotten her hooked on on smack so uh, and her name is coffee the uh, the nurse so it's uh it, it's a really um just classic revenge film where, you know, blood and guts movie where she's just blown everybody away with a shotgun, but Greer's so good in it. Uh, and it's just one of those movies where you watch her and you can't imagine her doing anything but acting in front of a camera. She's just perfect. And the music's fan fucking tastic in coffee as well. So watch that on prime video now, if you're looking for something to uh, sip a bourbon along with during this quarantine, because I know you are, that's the best thing I watched this month. 1973's, coffee hey big man why don't you turn off the lights this is the end of your rotten life you motherfucking dope pusher for him because he really didn't believe it was coming but it ain't gonna be easy for you because you better believe it's coming wait wait 
What do you want to go and do this for? Why? All right, I'm not going to give you recommendations on Netflix and Amazon like I usually do because I already gave you a bunch of them. Uh, so just go back through that list and watch all those. Put them on your list. You will not be disappointed. Have I ever led you in the wrong direction before, my friend? I don't think so. I think I've always I've always done right by you. Uh, we're going to have a bunch of stuff to talk about next month. I'm probably going to be talking about the West Wing. I'll be talking about HBO Max. I might be getting into the Americans. A lot of stuff that I have been getting into and wrapping up during this quarantine. So we will talk about it next month, as long as we're all still here, my friend. I thank you very much for joining me. Um, and uh, you can hit me on uh, the email at dclintdavis at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis. And Andy is uh, on email at sedlackjournal at gmail.com. And he is at Andy Sedlack on Instagram. So give him a follow. Thank you very much, my friend. We'll talk to you next time. Until then, stream on. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.